Good morning, Third Street. How's everybody feeling? Mm, a lot of sadness in the room, man. Must be, must be, because when I say, how you doing, everybody's like, right? Well, I'll, I'll keep praying for you. One of these Sundays, you'll be excited. Um, but man, if it's not this season, I don't know what's going to get you. We uh, continue this morning in our series that we call Rise Above. Can you say that? Rise Above. Rise above. We're we're continuing our series called Rise Above. It's a series that's specifically dedicated to overcoming the resistance of the enemy, the resistance that Satan tries to put between us, the resistance that is between us and eternity. Last week, we talked about overcoming these small battles that don't seem so small in the moment. Until they get us all caught up and distracted from what God has truly called us to. This week, this week we look to, uh, for some of us, a familiar passage in the spirit of Palm Sunday. The day that marks the arrival of Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem before he would go to be crucified. If you have your Bibles with you, you can meet me in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 21. The story that I'm reading this morning is found in Matthew chapter 21. It's found in Mark chapter 9. It's found in Luke chapter 19, and it's found in John chapter 12. All four Gospels saw fit to record this event. It must be significant. Amen. Uh, I'm going to pull from all four in order to give you a full telling. And so if you don't see it in Matthew, just trust me. Uh, that it's in one of those four Gospels that you can go back and check out on your own time later. But for our time and purposes this morning, I want to concentrate our efforts in Matthew chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 1, and we're going to read the first 11 verses together. Matthew chapter 21, Gospel according to Matthew says this, Now, When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the ground. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. (laughs) We've all been there. 
we all at times need a clear picture to be able to accomplish what is set before us. If you've sat down and you've done puzzles, you know what I'm talking about, right? In order to put the puzzle together and know clearly what pieces need to go where, you need a picture first of what the end product is supposed to look like. If you've ever been convinced by your spouse or somebody in your household to buy furniture from Ikea, you definitely know what I'm talking about. You need a picture of what it looks like. And when you look at the picture, it's easy to be excited. Won't that look so wonderful in my home? And then you pour out all of the pieces and you realize all the hard work that needs to go into making that picture fulfilled. And then frustration sets in and you start to compare what you're doing to the picture that's set before you and you're like, why don't my pieces look like their pieces? It must be on the manufacturer, right? They didn't put all the pieces in here. Or you get to the end and you're like, where were these supposed to go? And if nothing else, if you're at a point in your life and neither one of those resonates, surely you've, you've, looked, uh, you've looked to the future of your own life, found somebody in our world who does something like what you could see yourself doing someday. A hero, if you will, a, a picture of a person who is so accomplished in some particular area, you think to yourself, I want to do it like them. Right? I believe in this text, Jesus gives us the perfect vision of our hopeful future. See, sometimes in the face of resistance, Sometimes when we have the pieces of our life scattered all over the floor, sometimes when we're met with the full weight of the work we have to pull in to get to eternity, sometimes when we're faced with the resistance of the enemy, what is needed to be able to overcome is a picture of what the end will look like. There's a lot in this passage. And in order to not take up your whole holy week telling you all about it and to get us out of here in a relatively short amount of time, you know I'm only going to call out three things. This is the first one. Point one, our future is in Jesus. Now hold on, don't go to sleep on me yet. Here he goes, stating the obvious. Pastor, you brought it last week and you're already starting off with a bunt. What's going on? Listen. Come on. Hear me out. The setting, the setting when this, is, this story is taking place is during the Passover festival. It's a big deal. Jerusalem at this point was roughly the size of our city. Roughly the size of Canton. Matter of fact, it might have even been a little smaller, right? I know we have a picture of Jerusalem as this. No, nah, I'm going to let it go. But it's about our size. And imagine, if you will, a festival, a few days long event where people would come from all over the land 
into this small town. And they would cram the streets of the city. And they would come with all the excitement to acknowledge all that Jerusalem had to offer that week of the year. And the locals would be, would be like, where the crap did all these people come from? I'm just trying to get to the grocery store and my street's crowded. Why can't I get into my driveway? Who on earth thought this was a parking spot? How I'm going to put my garbage out tonight? Or something to that effect. And as a result of its, the event's magnitude, there are influencers that are very present, right? That want to make their presence known. I'm going to point out real quickly just a few. The first of which is we can know for certain that King Herod was present at Passover. King Herod was a very, very wealthy man. Many historians would acknowledge Herod as probably one of the richest in history. There was no known end to Herod's wealth. And as a result, he was acknowledged in a lot of ways as a king, though he held no official position within the government, right? Because it was Roman occupied, but I'll get there, right? Herod was so wealthy that he built cities. He put his money into brick and mortar. He put his money into building big things that people acknowledged as Herod's. Herod did this. Herod built this. This belongs to Herod. This city is Herod's. He put so much money that people acknowledged him as a key contributor, a key influencer. He held the economic power in the day. Then we know from the chapters that surround these events that the high priest of the Jewish tradition was also present. His name was Caiaphas. Caiaphas was there, but by reading the chapters that surround the event, what we learn about Caiaphas is that Caiaphas was one of those high priests that he more liked to invoke religious language to get his way rather than actually lead by the presence of God. I know that's really difficult for any of us to imagine. But once upon a time, there were religious leaders that just knew how to exchange tithe dollar for religious thoughts. There were religious leaders that knew how to invoke the name of God to gain clout and credibility. There were those that used the law given to Moses to be able to rub shoulders with the who's who of society. Caiaphas. I wish I had more time. And then there was the one who made his presence felt. There was, no, no, not yet. 
there was this man named Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was in a, uh, a particularly difficult situation. He was the Roman governor. Jerusalem was occupied and was ruled over by Romans, and the Jews didn't really like that. They were oppressed, as a matter of fact. And they liked to make their dissatisfaction with Roman officials known. They'd make it known in the streets when they ran into a centurion in the marketplace. Puh. They'd make it known when, when Pilate would come down with a decree that went against their culture. They'd make it known that there was the distaste and displeasure by being kept under the Roman thumb unjustly. And if there was ever going to be an uprising, a swelling of Jewish pride to the point that they might just do something about it, if ever there was going to be a time where so many Jews were gathered in one place, celebrating so, something so substantial to their heritage that they might just get the idea to fight back against the government, it very easily could have been Passover. And so Pilate chose to make his entry big, to make his entry bold. I'm talking about the evil version of Prince Ali coming down the streets. You feel me? Except instead of camels and elephants, my guy had Roman soldiers and war horses. He wanted his presence coming right down the main street through the big gates to be so known and so felt that no Jew would dare step out of line. Pilate, had the temple lined with his minions and placed himself in a position that let everybody know that you can celebrate all you want, but I am still the one with all the power. Influencers were everywhere. And then at the back gates, the gates that nobody would have thought to pay attention to. The side of the festival that wasn't blocked off for the parade. I'm talking about not Cleveland or Market, but over there on Cherry. Coming up from 3rd Street. <laughs> on a donkey. came the Christ, the son of the living God. Yeah. He who led with not his money, he who had a message but dare not abuse religious power, he who didn't govern by politics and man-made structures and systems, but he who led with humility, who in his wake left a trail of healed bodies, left a trail of restored families, left a trail 
of good news. That guy came in on a donkey. And if you fast forward through events of all four major influencers I just acknowledged, only one of which is exalted to this day. Only one of which stood the test of time. Only one of which would be tried and attempted to put to shame. Only to rise again and put all others to shame. The only people who came out of the crucifixion and the resurrection with shame were the influencers that tried to put it on him. All of this to say that if you are looking for a hopeful future, if you're looking for a future that will withstand the test of time, if you're looking for the future that our society cannot cancel, if you're looking for the future that the IRS cannot rob you of, if you're looking for the future that Instagram doesn't determine for you, then that future that you're looking for is in the one who came on a donkey. My fear is that too many of us are chasing the money. We're trying to get the bag because that's what's going to heal. That's what's going to pave my way out. That's what's going to make my family well. Never mind the generational curses and the chains that I still carry. It's the money that will help me overcome. I think that that applies to too many of us, which is why an entire section got real quiet. But but if we're to look at Herod, he ain't make it, did he? Where are those buildings at now? You can go on a tour of Israel for three easy payments of whatever they can get you for. And you ain't going to see not a one building that still stands from when his money was power. My fear is that some of us are too busy chasing the clout. My fear is that too many of us have chosen the avenue that we feel will gain us followers. A whole lot more you got quiet on this one, but I f which may confirm my fears. My fear is that too much, too much of our religious approach is really about what we're giving the appearance of, not about the ways that our hearts are transformed. My fear is that we're, 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 we're using the things that we're involved with, the good deeds that we do, to be public actions that get us into certain rooms that we're secretly chasing, rather than leading out of the humility that comes with a transformed heart. That's my fear. My fear is that as we open our phones first thing in the morning, we're more often changing how, checking how many more followers we got overnight after the content that we posted as opposed to checking our Bible app for at the very least the verse of the day that's given to you in a 30-second video. Tell me we're in the Instagram generation without telling me we're in the Instagram generation, right? My fear this morning is that a lot of us are chasing that power that a lot of us are chasing that position. 
that's going to mean that we have impact. A lot of us are carefully positioning ourselves in our lives to, to someday take up a seat that might make a difference. And yet the major difference that's made in Jerusalem that day was the one who found his seat on the back of a donkey. My fear is that so many of us are chasing after positions within the city without giving thought to doing the work, to being in the places, to riding through with the people that would have accompanied a donkey. Our future hope is not found in economic status. Our future hope will not be established by our religious influence. Our future hope cannot be attained by political or positional power. Our future hope, my brothers and sisters, is in Christ. So, which, which of the four are you chasing? Let me say it another way. Which of the four are you following? Because if it's Jesus, you don't got to run. He makes himself accessible to you. If you got to chase it, it probably ain't for you. <laughs> I would, but I got two more of these. Let me give you the second one. Jesus will do what he says he will do. I know. You tell me all the time. I love this passage because Jesus, it's, it's, it's like a soft flex. He tells his disciples like, yo, get the donkey. And if they say something to you, because they're going to say something to you. Just say the Lord needs it. And not only will they give it to you, they'll help you carry it. And wouldn't you know, in the more detailed accounts that we have, they go to get the donkey. And when they enter the town, they do immediately see the two donkeys. And they do go to untie the donkeys. And somebody does say to them, what are you doing with that? And they do turn around and say the Lord needs it. And they're like, well, let me help you. That literally happens. And then Jesus sets on it. There's so much, there's so much here. Forgive me for skipping a lot of it, right? I, let me just hit a few highlights. He sits on the donkey and rides through the town on the donkey. You want to know something crazy that you can evidently find yourself? Turn to Zechariah 9.9. You don't literally have to do it. Do it later if you want to. But turn to Zechariah 9.9 and you know what it'll say? It'll say that your Messiah will come through the streets riding on a donkey. You mean to tell me that hundreds of years before Jesus was even here, they spoke this, and then it happened. And then you know what people laid at his feet? They laid palm branches, which were a symbol of Jewish freedom. 
They were a symbol of Jewish liberation. They were a symbol of being free from slavery. And at Jesus' feet, they laid their palms. And then the people cried out. With what? With something you can find in Psalm 118. Something that was written so long ago. For such an occasion as this, all of which fulfilling prophecy foretold about the Messiah a really long time ago. And then Jesus tells his disciples just one page before this, he says this exactly. He says, we're going to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. They'll condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, to be flogged. And y'all want to know what his sentence is going to be? I'll tell you the sentence before I even get arrested. The sentence is going to be crucifixion. But on the third day, I will rise. He says that before he even gets on the donkey. He tells them exactly what's about to happen. All of this to say, Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus will do all that is written that he will do. Jesus will accomplish all he says that he will accomplish. And do you know what Jesus says he will do? Come back. He says he's coming back. He says we're going to live in a time after his resurrection, after his ascension, but before the second coming, that's going to be real difficult. He says we're going to live in a time where people will turn against each other. He says we're going to live in a time where truth is relative and it doesn't matter anymore. He says we're going to live in a time where people would use the name of God to gain clout. He says we're going to live in a time of civil war. He says we're going to live in a time where nations will destroy nations. But he says I'm coming back. If Jesus is who he says he is, if Jesus is going to do what he says he's going to do, then I have to wonder why we as his followers have so little faith. I have to wonder why every little resistance knocks us off our horse or our donkey. I have to wonder why. Jesus never says there won't be suffering. He actually promises it will be. But he guarantees deliverance in the midst. He guarantees restoration on the other side. In Revelation 21.4, it says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That death will be no more. That there will be no more mourning. That there will be no more crying. That there will be no more pain. For these things that cause us heartache will pass away and die. Where do you need to trust that Jesus is who he says he is? That he will do what he says he's going to do. And that includes you. I got to keep moving. I got to give you this third one before we get out of here. Third one is this. Jesus' arrival causes a stir. 
I love this part of the accounts. If you put Matthews and Luke's together, this part is dope. To back up a second, Matthew chapter 2 talks about the birth of Jesus and talks about the stir that was created in society when Jesus was born. Jesus' arrival marked a moment for a different king where he was so threatened by Jesus' arrival that he set forth a decree for all children under the age of two to be thrown out and murdered because he wanted to guarantee that that baby didn't live. It caused a wild stir in the community by him just being born. And when you read through the Gospels, everywhere he went, he causes a stir. But then specifically in this passage, specifically in verse 10, it says that when he entered Jerusalem, remember, Prince Ali just entered through the main gates. He don't got no music. To my knowledge, Peter wasn't on the turntables. He didn't have trumpets. He didn't have doves being released. He didn't have soldiers marching in unison, creating the beat on the ground. He had the humility of riding in on a donkey. And it says the whole city was stirred up. Oh, guys, I wish I had time. It says the whole city was stirred up. It said everybody was quaking. It said the ground was moving when he walked in. Saying, who is this? Right? Who is this? In Luke's gospel, it says that the people cried out. They were so stirred, they cried out. Just by seeing him, just by being in his presence, they recognized that he was the Messiah. And they begin to cry out. And the Pharisees said, Jesus, make them stop saying that. That's sacrilegious. Make them stop. And Jesus drops one of the dopest bars I've ever heard. He said, if they weren't saying it, the rocks would. Even the rocks would cry out. Jesus creates such a stir that even an inanimate object such as the ground is like, dang, he here. Hebrews 12 tells us that he will come back, that he will come back to remove all that can be shaken, that he's going to create a stir. But when he creates that stir, those who have inherited the unshakable kingdom will stand firm and continue on. But those who weren't ready for his arrival will be shook and thrown out. When Jesus steps onto the scene, Jesus creates a stir, which leaves me wondering out loud this last thing, and then I'm out your way. If we are little Christs, you see it, right? If we are little Christs, are we creating a stir? Does our presence undeniably announce that something different is here? When we walk into the room, do people feel as if hope is accessible? 
do people hold, feel that even in the midst of the rowdiness and the chaos of what's going on, peace is present. When you're at work, do you create a stir? Do people, no, the good way. There's always one. She's right there. Yeah. Do you create a stir with the way that you move in the workplace? Is your school different because of the way that you walk through the hallways and carry yourself in the classroom? Do the children that you're raising recognize the hope, truth, peace, love, and grace of Jesus, our Savior, because you're their mom? Because you're their dad. Do they see it through you? When you're out with your friends, does it feel different? Though we've been to this place many times before, it feels different now because you're here. Is that the type of stir that you create? And I got to land on this. I got to land by wondering out loud with my brothers and sisters present with, with you all who I consider so greatly my family, I wonder if we're a church that causes a stir. Like, I wonder if this city's any different because we're here. Like, I wonder if, like, the gravel is moving outside and demons in the neighborhood are running and hiding, keeping their distance because we're here. I'm wondering... If we went away, would this city be any different? In Luke 19, immediately after going through the city, Jesus goes up to a high place and he looks out over all of Jerusalem and he weeps. When you look out over the city that you reside in, do you weep? Are you saddened with the darkness that you see in the midst of the bright lights? Do we weep for our city? Because what he weeps for is all those who didn't respond at his entry. He weeps for the people that he walked right past and they didn't catch it. He weeps for the people who have heard the message, but they don't respond. He weeps for the darkness, for the people that are so caught up in the darkness that they don't think to call out to the light. I wonder if when we arrive in people's lives, if they see people who aren't just chasing the bag, when we arrive in people's lives, that we're not just chasing clout, numbers, influence. I wonder if when we enter into people's lives, if they see people who aren't chasing something but following Jesus. I wonder if when we arrive in people's lives, if they see people who are going through it, but have a confident hope in the one who saves. I wonder if when we arrive in people's lives, if they recognize something different has stepped onto the scene. My family, I know we're going through it right now. I know, I know it's real. But Jesus gives us the picture to follow. He gives us the example of how to put the pieces together. Jesus shows us a posture of humility. Do you have that? 
Jesus shows us to put out actions and responses that show our faith. Do you have that? Are you able to make the hard decisions and trust in the one who says that he will heal and restore and not keep and hold on to the fear of ripping off the Band-Aid? Do your actions show your faith in Jesus? And Jesus shows a natural, a naturally supernatural output of there being a stir in your wake. An output that stirs things right from where we stand. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the hope that you provide in your son Jesus. Lord, we thank you that while we were yet still people caught up in the hoopla and the festivities around us, that you saw fit to bring to us humbly yet powerfully one who could transform everything. Father, we thank you that even when we least expected it, when we thought we knew what it was all about, you showed us, man, we don't know nothing. God, we thank you that you make the hope and the peace, the good news that you have to offer so accessible through our King, our Savior, our Messiah, the person of Jesus. Lord, I pray for those of us who have not yet chosen to follow, who have not yet let go of our dreams of economic status, who have not yet let go of our hopes and desires to be amidst people of influence. Lord, I pray for those of us who have not yet let go our endless pursuit of that positional power we were told would be important. God, I pray that you wreck our hearts for something different. God, I pray that we weep like you weep when you see us hold on to those things. God, I pray that you would not let us take another step holding on to those things. But instead, humbly yet powerfully shove through our heads the vision of Jesus entering our lives on a donkey. And God, I pray that for all of us who have been distracted, for all of us who have not been following the way that you created, but have started to pick up steam on the other path, Lord, we thank you for the reminder 
to get back on the way to eternity. Lord, we thank you that what you provide for us on the path is protection from all the destruction of the world around us. We lean into your way right now, Father, and we pray these things by the name that makes it all possible, and that is Jesus. And all who believe say, bless up.